All right, well, good morning. My name is Doug. I'm the pastor here at Parkview East, and it's a joy to be able to be here with you this morning. Just real quick, I want to remind you, if you're new with us, we are very glad that you are here. Um, the way we do children's ministry here is a little different, and we do it um, for a reason this way. About every other week, except for on the weeks where we have five weeks, in, or the months where we have five weeks in a month, every other week we have kids in the service. Uh, I think it's, is it, I don't know how, what the age is, somebody tell me, like kindergarten on down is out there maybe. And then elementary school kids are in here. And so as a result, um, there might be a little more commotion in here, some movement around, and that's okay. If you've got your kids with you in the service today, that is all right. We're okay with that. Um, but there's a lot of value in having kids be in here, right? There's a lot of value in letting kids see what church service looks like um, and not always sending them out there. And so we try to do a little bit of both. Um, here at Parkview East. So if you're new, you got kids, we're glad that you're with us. Um, we are actually in the middle of, actually we're starting a new series called New Life. And uh, we just finished the Gospel of Mark. We've walked through the book of Mark and we really looked at who Jesus was. Um, last week we celebrated Easter. And uh, what we're going to talk about really with this New Life series is how the discovery of the empty tomb, it, it demands a response from us and it produces life in us. All right, and so the next couple of weeks, we're going to looking, be looking specifically at the type of life that the Christian is called to live as a result of the work that has been accomplished um, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. All right, so we're going to take this theological, this amazing historical event, and we're going to apply it to our lives over the next couple of weeks. Um, this morning really is going to be an introductory message to this series, and I'm going to be teaching from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And so if you have your Bible, a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament towards the back of your Bible. If you do not have a copy of God's Word with you, there are some back there. You can raise your hand, and I'm so sure somebody will bring one to you. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up. But I would, the words won't be on the screen, so it'll, it'll benefit you to have a Bible in your hands. Um, so Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is God's Word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father God, as we um, turn our attention now to your word, Father, I pray that your spirit would fill this place and it would guide us in your truth. Lord, I pray your spirit is here, is among us, Lord, and I pray that he would guide us in your truth, Lord, and that he would move us in obedience, Father. Um, we pray right now just that these words would encourage your saints and compel those who do not know you to come to you, Father. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. It has been said before that life is what you are alive to. That life is what you are alive to. Perhaps you know somebody who, um, there's a particular subject, and whenever that particular sub subject comes up in conversation, that person comes to life, right? Maybe it's their family. They love talking about their children or their spouse or their parents, Maybe it's a family thing that sparks life in them. Perhaps it's, you know, if you're from Iowa City, maybe it's your beloved Hawkeyes. That anytime the, the conversation turns to the success or the failure of the Hawkeyes, depending the year, you come alive and you begin to talk. 
It was a couple weeks ago, I, I found myself one of the things, just a, this is a safe place this morning, right? Um, one of the things I like to do to kind of unwind is to go to a workout at North Dodge, and I like to go, they have a steam room there, right? So I like to every now and then slip into the steam room. Now, I did not know they had a steam room. It's kind of tucked away, and it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that I discovered, somebody told me about the steam room, I found it, and it's been very therapeutic, and I enjoy it, all right? A little different, but whatever, okay? So, go to the steam room. And I, I am still trying to figure out, like, proper steam room etiquette, all right? <laughs> I don't know if you've been in one or not, but, you know, it's kind of like, is it like, does it work like the urinal etiquette? Like, just <laughs> eyes forward, maybe closed, no talking. Is that steam room? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out, right? But you go in there, and there's other people that are in there, and there are some laying, some sitting, and, you know, it's just relaxing, and it's hot and steamy steamy, okay? So it's just a little awkward. You're with strangers, people you don't know. What do you do? Do you talk? And so I went in there a couple weeks ago, and there's like, honestly, like five people in there, the most I've ever seen in there. I walk in, and I'm like, oh no, this is, this is really a learning experience. I'm going to learn what proper steam room etiquette is. And I walked in, it was just totally silent, you know, totally silent. Nobody moved. Wasn't sure life was actually in that room when I walked in. And after about maybe three or four minutes, somebody leaned over and said to anybody, catch the Cubs score today. It was opening day. It was the opening day of the baseball season. Anybody catch the score of the Cubs game? And I'm telling you, just that one question just resurrected life into the steam room, right? Because for these individuals, like that subject, it just brought in so much life. They came alive in that moment. Life is what you come alive to. Now, when we read the scriptures, Paul, the author of Colossians, makes a very important case, letter after letter, chapter after chapter when he writes, as Christians, those who have been united with Christ, Christ is our life. He is our life. Christ is our life. He is who has brought life to us, and he is who we are alive Two, our text says we are hidden with Christ. Everything about our life has to do in relationship to Christ. He is our life. He's our life. And really the, the main idea of this text this morning is that if you have been united with Christ, this union produces new life in you. It produces new life in you. If you are united with the risen Christ, you should live like it. You should live like it. It's a pretty simple point, but it's also quite remarkable. This morning's passage serves, these four little verses serve as a bridge that connect the deep theological positions that Paul lays in Colossians chapter 1 and 2 with the personal applications that will follow in chapters 3 and 4. These four small verses bridge two really important words. In Colossians 1 and 2, Paul establishes the supremacy of Christ. He is supreme over all of creation. He is supreme over salvation. He is supreme over the church. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul moves into the sufficiency of Christ. He is not just supreme, he is sufficient for you. 
in your life. He reigns supremely over the world and he rules sufficiently in your heart. That's the way Christ works. That's how it should be for the Christian. From the cosmic, he moves from the cosmic preeminent Christ to the personal, intimate Christ. The cross and Easter are not just useful as we think about them in the abstract, theological, theoretical world. And sometimes when we think about spiritual things, about the work that Jesus has accomplished, it stays in the abstract. It stays in the abstract. What Paul does in these verses is he brings the abstract into your daily life. The cross, the resurrection, was a historical event, a physical reality. It actually happened, and it has tremendous implications on how we live our life every day. Every choice, every decision, every relationship, every position, Christ should speak to it for us. Union with Christ results in new life. Now, the, the, the points this morning that we'll see just three points. The first thing is how does this happen? How does union with Christ produce new life? Now I'm going to give you three things. The first thing is that our, this union with Christ, it assigns us, assigns us our identity. It assigns us our identity. Now everybody knows, anybody who's lived or has kids or been around anybody, you understand the importance of identity formation how you form your identity. There was an article in the New York Times in 2015. It declared, at the end of 2015, declared the year of 2015 as the year we obsessed over identity. Perhaps you remember 2015, there was a number of different things. One that just jumps to mind is Rachel, I don't know how to say her last name, Dalazel. I think it's how you say it. But, but basically a professor, she was a white Caucasian woman who had lived under the um, identity of an African-American woman and it came out that she was actually white, but she had been posing as an African-American woman, right? But she was actually white. Right? And, and it began to kind of take what people had seen in culture as sort of gender fluidity and said, okay, now there's also racial fluidity. Right? And, and what does it mean to form and to shape your identity? The truth is 2015 wasn't just the year we obsess about identity. Every year is the year we obsess about identity. A.W. Tozer is famous for saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. There's a tremendous amount of truth there. I would say if there's a second most important thing, it probably has to do with what comes into your mind when you think about you. Most important thing. What's the first thing we think about when we think about God? Close second. What do you think about when you think about yourself? Identity formation in Western culture, really there's primarily two ways that you come to understand who you are. The first is sort of through, and this would be maybe one that especially like baby boomer generation, um, generation, I don't know how all the generations go, X and maybe uh, 35 and up maybe we'll say would identify with this. That largely the way you form your identity is by what you do. It's the achievement sort of way of forming your identity. You are what you do. 
right? You think about your profession. So like last year, I did a little bit of driving for a wonderful organization called Uber. All right, that's a little sarcasm there, but I drove for Uber, right? And every conversation was just completely predictable. People would get into the car, and it was exactly the same script. I would talk to other friends who drove Uber, same script. They would get in, and they'd say, oh, how you doing? Good. How are you? How's, how's your night? Is it busy? Whatever, you know, yes, you're in my car now, it's busy, all right? Um, and then the third question, generally there'd be a little bit of silence, and usually the third question would have something to do with, so what do you do? What do you do? When they wanted to find out who I was, the question came to what I did, right? And I was defined by my profession, essentially. And if it was an interesting profession, which depending on how you think a pastor is, I don't know, it would determine the trajectory of the conversation or it would just cut it off altogether, usually, right? But I was being defined by who I was. And I think that's one way a lot of times people can come to the conclusion of who they are. It's through this achievement in performance, okay? But the second one, and I think is kind of where we are primarily as a culture, especially when you think about millennials, is that it's actually um, through what's called expressive individualism. And it's not, you're not defined by what you do. Rather, you come to the understanding of who you are based on how you feel. There's this assumption, this understanding that there is this deep inner core that you have to discover. Right, And the way you discover it, it's kind of the, the Disney um, fairy tale princess storyline. Frozen, for example. You, you remove yourself from community, from those who love you, who have supported you, who care for you. You remove yourself. You isolate yourself from your community. You dig down deep within yourself. You discover feelings and emotions. And then you take that identity that you've discovered deep within you and you fling it out into the world. And you say, this is who I am. Right? The age of the selfie. Right? You discover who you are, whether it's who you are or who you really want to be. Either way, you, you take a picture, you sling it out there into the interwebs, okay? And then everybody sees it and people applaud it and affirm, yes, that's you. You be you. You do you, right? And then 10 seconds later, rinse and repeat, right? You got to do it again because the Snapchat thing just deleted and you got to put another image out there. Right? That's how you discover, you discover who you are and you express it to the world. You remove yourself from community. There's an emphasis on autonomy, authenticity, individuality, and freedom. Look deep within, abandon the social networks, come back to the social networks, tell them who you are, right? That's how you form identity. There's a couple of, there's a few problems, quite a few problems with this, all right? Just to name a few for the sake of time. First problem is, if you look inside yourself, anybody who's really honest, you're going to see pretty quick that those feelings that are inside you actually inconsistent with each other. They're inconsistent. The feeling that says this is who you love is not always consistent with this is where you want to live or what you want to do as a profession. What happens when they compete with each other? What do you do? And the other problem is not just are they inconsistent, but they're also unstable, all right? Some may be a little more unstable than others. <laughs> not going to point any fingers, right? But the feelings change. 
they change, right? There, there can be experiences, events in your life you have no control over, zero control. It, it, what do you do? Does that change who you are? If there's trauma that comes into your life, does that now change the very essence and foundation of your identity, right? The, the other thing that I think is problematic is that it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on people. You have to discover who you are. There's something in there, and hopefully it's accepted by those around you, right? There's a lot of pressure. Now, there's not all bad stuff, and there are some good redemptive things that can happen, but for the most part, this is not how you want to figure out who you are. In the world, really, I mean, and it's changed in different cultures from this is kind of the Western way of doing things in different parts of the world. There's a totally different way that identity is formed that does, is, embeds itself in community, right? But, but being Christian, being a Christian, our, our identity is not, this is what's so awesome about the gospel, what Jesus did. Our identity is not constructed. It doesn't depend on you to figure out how to form it. What's awesome about being united with Jesus is that he assigns you an identity. He calls you by name. You are his sheep. And he calls them by name. And he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd. When it comes to formation, you can either construct it or you can receive it. And I think what Paul is telling us, he considers the temptations and the challenges at the church at Colossians, is he points them back to who they are. Who they are in Christ. They are raised with Christ. They are hidden with Christ in God. They will appear with Christ in glory. His solution is not some prescription. As you consider the challenges and the difficulty it is to walk out the life that Christ has called you to, he doesn't prescribe to you a bunch of different things. Instead, he starts not with a prescription, but a description of who you are. Who you are. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most amazing event in history. But just as amazing it is, is that, that every person who trusts in Christ shares in the reality, the power, and the glory of his resurrection. You have been raised with Christ. You are united with him in his death and united with him in his resurrection. A lot of people love to talk about the I am statements. You go through the book of John and Jesus says who he is, right? He is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the vine. I'm the resurrection and the life. It's so amazing when you consider who he is. But you could also go through the Bible and you could read and examine the you are statements. And what Paul is reminding the, the church at Colossians is that you need to remember who you are. Are. He starts with who Jesus is. He is supreme. And then he turns his direction to you are who you are. You can go all throughout the Bible. You are God's possession. You are his child. He calls you his friend. You are a soldier, his ambassador. You are a temple. You are chosen and beloved, a precious jewel. You are his heritage. See the tremendous freedom? There's no pressure to discover who you are, he has already called you his. You've been united with Christ. Who do you think you are? It matters. It matters a great deal. 
The next point, the, the way we see that this union with Christ produces new life is that he doesn't just assign us our identity. I'm going to skip down to verses 3 and 4. We also see that he alters our trajectory. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul believes that our union with Christ does not simply yield us a new identity, but it also completely alters the trajectory of our lives. Not only is our life bound up with Christ, so is our destiny. To describe this new trajectory that our lives are on, Paul refers both to the present status and also the future transformation. And the two really phrases to key in here first is hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And now this is not hidden in the sense of like hide and go seek or like an Easter egg hunt. That you're hiding something away so somebody cannot find it. But really there's kind of two senses here. First John 3, 2 sheds some light on it. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Hidden in one sense, it means that our life will be unstained by sin and unveiled by Jesus. Who we truly are will be gloriously revealed. Have you ever had the sense that, that maybe like you have a part of the hard time, the struggle in life is that like you have a deep sense and understanding of who you are, but you have a hard time like living that out. Well, there will be a day where there will be no more difficulty. Who you truly are in Christ, although it's, it's hidden from the rest of the world, will be gloriously revealed. And there's also another sense to hiddenness that it's hidden in the sense that it's safe and that it's secure. That, that our identity in Jesus cannot be changed. It cannot be redirected or taken from us. It is safe, untouchable. This speaks to who we are now. But in the future, the verse in verse 4 says that one day we will appear with him in glory. Paul then turns his attention to the future hope we have as believers. That our identity in Christ, now very real but hidden, will one day be manifest. Because Christ is in us and we are in him, we have the hope, the very hope of glory there will one day be a final transformation where we will be free from stain. The pain and struggle of life will not plague us. We will be completely transformed into the very image, the very image and the very likeness of Christ himself. We will share in his glory. We will share in it. What a hope. What a tremendous, amazing hope that he gives us. So Paul tells us that Christ, this new life, he assigns us a new identity. He alters our trajectory. Paul says, in Christ, this is who you are. And in Christ, this is who you will be. But there's a problem. If you notice, I didn't go in the normal flow, right? Because there's, there's a problem that many of us face when we consider this reality. And the problem is, as you examine your life, as you examine your life and you see who you are, like right now, and you consider and line that up with who, who Christ has called you to be and who you will be one day, if you are like me or if just real with yourself, you will see that sometimes it seems there is an immeasurable gap, a great chasm that exists between those two realities, who you are now and who Christ has called you to be, future glory, his image and likeness. There's a gap. 
And what we, the challenge before us, really with this whole series, is to figure out how then do we live in this gap, with this tension, with this problem, who I am presently and who Christ has called me to be. Like as I examine my heart and I see struggles and I see sin, I see challenges, and sometimes if I'm not careful, those challenges, that gap life can cause me to get frustrated. It can cause me to get discouraged because I feel like I'm not living the life that Christ has called me to live. What's our response? Do we simply try harder? Maybe we wait for next year to start up that Bible reading plan again, right? What's the response? What do we do? Well, sandwiched between these two realities, Paul tells the church at Colossae exactly what they're supposed to do. Exactly what they're supposed to do. He says, you've been given a new identity, you've been given a new trajectory, and in the middle he says that he has also, that Christ has also, as we have been united with us, he aligns our priorities, gives us an entirely new set of priorities. And they're simply summed up in verses 1b through 2. It says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Here's the deal, brothers and sisters. As we consider the frustrations and the challenges that we face as we try to live out the Christian life, as we consider those things, Paul is telling us He's telling us that there is a, a reorientation that has to take place with where we just fix our gaze, where we put our focus. You see, Paul is specifically addressing this issue not just in us, but also in the church in Colossae. See, what had happened in that particular context for that church was that they had started the church, and then Paul caught wind that false teachings began to creep, creep into the church. False teachings, they started to partake in worshiping of angels, and there was all kinds of stuff that they were embracing, pagan, folk, religion. They were adding, essentially, to the gospel. See, what their primary problem was is they, they were not trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus. They wanted Jesus plus you name it. And I would propose to you that's really what our problem is too. As we think of maybe idleness in our Christian faith, in our life, as we seek to live out this new life, a lot of it can be, comes back to the fact that for you, perhaps Jesus isn't enough. That you want to add to Jesus. Now they did it in the form of ritualistic, religion, pagan worship. But is that how we add to Jesus? We see that actually, as you go back down and read throughout chapter 3, Paul specifically addresses not just some of the ritual stuff they're doing, but the real personal stuff, like their sexual life, right? The, the way they live their life. He's talking specifically to those things. Because really, when we think about it, what we're doing is adding to Jesus. We're, we're getting frustrated because we think Jesus is not enough. But Paul reminds them he is supreme and he is sufficient. And he tells them, seek, your, your, seek the things that are above, set your minds on things that are above. D.L. Moody is famous for saying, um, talking and saying that people have become so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. And what he means simply is folks sometimes can think so much about theology and they can think so much in the abstract and in the spiritual world that become earthly kind of useless. They're not actually practically living out their life, right? Well, the complete opposite can be said as well, right? 
The complete opposite can be said, that we have become so earthly-minded that we are no heavenly good. See, the truth is, what Paul is saying is here, is your feet may be on the earth, but your mind should be in heaven. Your mind should be in heaven. And the two ways that you can think about how to do this is it comes down to, first of all, orientation. How are you oriented? For Paul, remember, to be Christian, the way he talks about being Christian, again, is about your relationship to Christ. The greatest like, definition Paul would probably give you of what it means to be a Christian, he would simply say two words, in Christ. That would be his definition of what it means to be a Christian, that you are in Christ. And so to see your life and it's how it connects in every possible way to Jesus, that he is your orientation, that the complete gaze, your entire gaze and fixation is on Christ. Now, this is not an easy thing to do because our feet are stuck on earth, right? It's not an easy thing. And so I think of just some very simple ways that as a people we do this. The most obvious way is like preaching to the choir, but church service on a Sunday is a great way to orient your life around Jesus. You come weekly with your family, with your friends. You sing songs to Jesus. You read words by Jesus. You pour your heart out to Jesus. You cry out to Jesus. Your weak orient is, is really reoriented around Christ. Church service is a great thing, and you do that together. It, it should be a priority. It should be a priority. It's a great way to start your week. It is an awesome way to shape and orient your life. I think of just the disciplines that maybe come to mind right away, like reading your Bible, being in prayer, right? These are disciplines. Now, he's not, he doesn't give you a list of disciplines, right? But those disciplines exist to do this thing, to keep your gaze on Jesus, to keep your eyes above to seek the things that are above. You have to regularly be in the habit of this. And when it comes to, to jobs, to school, to activities, to the th pressures that the culture push on us, push in on us, oftentimes these are the things that go by the wayside. They go by the, the wayside. So you need accountability to keep your gaze fixed. You can't be doing it in isolation. You got to be doing it with people. And so that comes to occupation. You want your mind to be occupied with the things of Christ. And one of the primary ways that we do that here at East is through community groups. That you're in community where you're not just gathering for a couple of hours, but you're actually in one another's life. And we've set up these things called community groups. And I would really challenge you, if you are not in a community group, this is the structure by which we try to occupy our minds with Jesus and orient our lives around Jesus. It's through community, all right? Because you have to have people who can start to see, like when my gaze begins to drift down and I start to be focused on things of this earth, I need brothers and sisters who can lovingly call me out on it. And you do too. Because our feet are grounded on earth. Right? We live between these two worlds, and we cannot do it alone. He did not design it for us to even attempt to do it alone. All right? We need one another. We need to be oriented around Christ, and we need to be occupied with Christ. Union with the risen Christ produces new life. Like it physically changes the way you live your life. And I would simply ask you this morning, are you living like it? Are you living like it? Is your gaze fixed? Do you seek the things that are above? Have you set your mind on things that are above? 
And if you see your gaze starting to, maybe like right now as you examine where your heart and your mind, where your affections in life are, if they are closely tied and tethered to this world, that's a problem. That's a problem. Okay? Examine what are the things that you are seeking. What are the things when you speak about that you come alive to? Are they heavenly things or are they earthly things? Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father God, thank you just this morning for just a reminder. Um, first and foremost, Lord, of who you are, that you are um, supreme, that you are almighty, you are majestic, that you are beautiful, Father, that you are all-powerful. Lord, and think about the work that you did and how you have connected us as we have been united with you. Now the power that you have, the life that you have has been connected, and we now have that. Lord, and I just pray that you would help your saints this morning just examine our lives and to be able to see maybe areas where we're not living like it, where we're not tapping into that power, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be, um, be the source of um, all of our power and all of our life, Father. And I pray that you would help us to just recognize areas in our life that, um, that are causing our gaze to fall from you and to focus on things of this earth, Lord. Lord, I pray you give us the strength to, to lift our heads up and to be reminded that you have called us by name, that you have assigned us our identity, Lord, that you have radically altered the trajectory, the destiny of our lives, Father, and that you have realigned the priorities for us. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that. We ask these scenes in your name. Amen.